it's uh, one of those days you never forget. One of those days you always remember where you were and what you were doing. It was Tuesday morning, 9-11. And most people were going about their lives like it was just any other day of the week, driving to work, carpooling to school, cleaning the house, making plans for, plans for lunch. And then suddenly our world changed. 9-11 there in New York City, the planes flew into the Twin Towers and something we thought was permanent, something we just assumed was always going to be there, and now it wasn't there anymore. And suddenly we realized that much of what we put our hope in it's a lot more fragile than we thought. Well, what happened to us that day as a nation is the same thing that could happen to any of us on any day as individuals. I read about a woman who was standing in the grocery store. She was standing in the aisle where you find the frozen pizzas. She was trying to decide, do I get the pepperoni or the triple cheese? And all of a sudden, she felt a pain in her chest. She had a massive heart attack, dropped to the floor, and died right there in the grocery store just seconds away from eternity, and she didn't even know it. Was she ready for the next world? I don't know. But what if you'd been standing there that day and it happened to you? Would you have been ready for what comes next? I mean, what if you knew 30 minutes from now that your life in this world was coming to an end? Would it make a difference in what you're thinking about right now? Would it make a difference in what you care about? You see, people who are wise, very wise, are all the time advising us, begin with the end in mind. Let the future and the truth about the future, let that be what shapes and determines what you do here in the present. Now, I don't mean to be so negative, so let me illustrate this in a little more positive way. Let's imagine you're living back in the year 1910, and back there in 1910, you've done really well for yourself. Financially, things are looking good, but you want to make your money count. So you're thinking about making an investment. You've noticed how the country is growing. There are just lots and lots of people, and they always seem to be on the go. They're always in a hurry to get somewhere else. So having the right kind of transportation seems to be a big deal. So you're thinking to yourself, if I really want to make my money count, it might be wise for me to buy stock in the transportation industry. But what part of the transportation industry? You know, back in 1910, there are cars. They've been around for more than a decade. But you don't see that many of them on the road. And what few cars you do see, you notice how they just keep breaking down all the time. They're notorious for being undependable. And you've also noticed that there are not many good roads to ride on, and there aren't any gas stations either. <laughs> so back in 1910, having a car was not a very practical or reliable way to get from one place to the other. So putting your money in a car company, mm, that seems to be a waste. I mean, that appears to be a bad investment. Well, what about the airplane? Well, this is the year 1910, and it was only seven years ago that Wilbur and Orville Wright got the first plane up off the ground, and it didn't stay up there for very long. He was only up in the air for a few seconds, and 120 feet later, he came crashing to the ground. So back in 1910, the air airplane was considered to be a joke, this dangerous toy that anybody who gets in one of those things is putting their life on the line. I mean, only daredevils or stuntmen who work for the circus would be foolish enough to fly around in something like that. So buying stock in an airplane company? Oh, I don't think that's a good move. In fact, everybody back then wanted to say, that's a bad investment. In fact, if you talked to the money experts back in 1910 and they knew you were interested in something in the transportation industry, they would have advised you invest in the horse and buggy. And their words would have made perfect sense because back in 1910, everybody had a horse and buggy. I mean, those things, you couldn't even keep them on the showroom floor. They sold so fast. And back in 1910, never had those buggies been so well built. 
I mean, back in 1910, having a horse and buggy by far was the safest, most reliable means of transportation available to you. So back in the year 1910, if you were looking at things from the past to the present and evaluating things from that perspective, oh, the horse and buggy, that's where you need to invest. But what if in the year 1910, you could have known what we know today? What if you could have come to the future and looked from the future to the past? Wouldn't you have spent your money in a different way? Wouldn't you have been willing to do something that back then to everybody else around you would have seemed foolish and risky, putting your money in the cars and planes? Oh, but being able to look from the future to the past just gives you a whole different perspective. Well, that's the kind of perspective that Jesus is trying to provide in Matthew chapter 25, the chapter we're going to look at today. And in this chapter, Jesus is basically teaching this lesson, begin with the end in mind. Let the future and the truth about the future, let that be what shapes and determines what you do, how you act here in the present. Think of it like this. For the past couple of weeks, we've been looking to the past. We've been celebrating Jesus and his first coming to the world. You know, we set up the nativity scenes. We've been singing all kinds of songs about the baby in the manger. We've been reading scriptures and listening to sermons about Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the shepherds. We've been celebrating our king and how he first came to the world. And that's good. That's important. We need to do that. But as you look through your Bible, you notice, especially when you get to the New Testament, that the Bible says a whole lot more about his second coming than it does its first. As you're flipping through the page of the New Testament, you notice how almost every single book either alludes to it or directly mentions the fact that one day Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, we need to be ready for his return. Well, the first question that comes to our mind is, well, when is he coming back? And nobody knows for sure. Only God knows that. But here's what we do know. We're closer to that moment today than we were yesterday. And we're closer to that moment this year than we were last year. And the Bible's made it really clear. There's just no doubt about it. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, you need to be ready for it. So that brings the second question to mind. How? How do we get ourselves ready for that glorious day? And that's the question that Jesus is going to answer here in this scripture. So let's take a look at it. It's Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to begin with verse 14. Now, one of the things we're going to learn as we're reading this scripture is this. Waiting Waiting for the return of Jesus is not a passive thing. It's an active thing. In other words, waiting for the return of Jesus is not like the kind of waiting you do when you're sitting in an airport. I mean, you're just sitting there doing nothing. You're just sitting there twiddling your thumbs. You're just sitting there watching the minutes go by until you can actually board the plane, and then you begin to fly to another place. That's not how we wait for the return of Jesus. Waiting for the return of Jesus is more like the kind of waiting that an athlete does as he waits for the season to begin. But knowing that the day of the game is not that far off, what is he doing? Every day he's training and practicing. Every day he's going through drills. Every day he's watching his diet so that when the day of the game arrives, he's ready to play. And he is ready to play well. Or waiting for the return of Jesus is like the kind of waiting a couple does. A couple that just recently became engaged. And now that they're engaged, they know the day of the wedding, that's a real thing. But boy, before that day arrives, there's so much that needs to be done. There's all this planning and preparation that needs to take place before you get to that special moment. you got to book the reception hall. You need to shop for dresses and tuxes. You need to go over the guest list and make sure you've invited all the right people. So it is for the Christian as we wait for the return of Jesus. It's a time of activity. There are a lot of things we need to do to get ourselves ready for that very special moment. And that's what Jesus is going to talk about here. What? What are we supposed to be doing in the meantime while we wait for Jesus to return? 
Well, Jesus says getting ready for a second coming is like this, verse 14. He says it's like a man going on a journey. He knows he's going to be gone for a while, but just before he leaves, he calls in his servants. He calls in all the people who work for him. And he says, listen, I'm going to be gone for a while, but while I'm gone, I've got an assignment for you. I have something I want you to do. So it says here, he entrusted his wealth to them. Now get that, his wealth. They're working with his property, his resources, his asset, not their own. And the Bible says he entrusted this to them. That word entrust means more than just hang on to it, hold it, keep it safe, make sure you don't lose it. Uh-uh. It means a whole lot more than that. We're going to learn that here in this story. The master is basically saying here, this is my money, but I'm asking you to do something with it. I mean, do with it what I would do with it. Uh, put it to work, invest it, grow it, be productive, uh, do something with it, and, and see what kind of difference you can make. So the master takes his wealth, and he begins to distribute it. He takes his resources, and he now puts it in the care of those who are working for him. But notice how he distributes it. Verse 15, he says to the first man, he gave five bags of gold. To the second man, he gave two bags of gold. And to the third man, he gave one bag of gold. Now, in many of your Bibles, rather than that phrase, bags of gold, in many of your Bibles, it's going to use the word talent. To the first man, he gave five talents. To the second, he gave two. And to the third man, he gave one talent. But the way we hear that word talent today is so different from the way they would have heard that word back in Bible times. When we hear the word talent, we're thinking of some kind of skill. You know, you can sing, you can dance, you can paint, you can throw the football farther than anybody else in the school. But back in Bible times, when you heard that word talent, you were instantly thinking about money and a certain amount of money. So what's being said here is that the master gave to the first man five briefcases. And each briefcase is loaded with money. I mean, each briefcase contains $300,000 in cold, hard cash. And he's got five of those briefcases to work with. The second man has two briefcases, but both briefcases loaded with cash. And the third man has just one briefcase. But again, that briefcase is just stuffed with cash. So all three men have a lot to work with. Everybody here has got something really significant to use. Now, of course, the question comes up, well, why weren't they given the same? Why does each man receive something different? And Jesus explains. He says it was given to each according to their ability. God hasn't made us in the same way. Each one of us has a unique design. So what God expects from me is not the same thing he's going to expect from you. Think of it like this. Here's a man who rather than going out and buying cars, he decides to create his own cars. He's created a sports car that can easily do 185 miles an hour out there in the interstate. But the same man has also created a truck, a large truck, because what he wants to be able to do with that truck is not the same thing he wants to be able to do with his sports car. And this man has also created his own version of a minivan, because what he wants to do with that minivan is not the same thing he's going to do with the truck and not the same thing he does with a sports car. So this man who's created all these different vehicles, is he going to be upset when one day he hops into that minivan and he takes it out in the highway and it can't go beyond 80 miles an hour? No, he's not going to be upset. Or is he going to be disappointed when he learns that sports car gets horrible gas mileage? No, because each vehicle has its own design. It was designed with a specific purpose in mind. And as long as the vehicle's doing what it's designed to do, the owner of the car, the creator of the car, he's going to be happy. When he hops in that sports car and it goes fast, really fast, he's happy. When that minivan safely and comfortably delivers the seven members of his family from the grocery store and brings them back home, again, he is pleased. And when that truck hauls a bunch of timber down from the mountain or delivers a load of grain to the grain bin, again, he's pleased because each vehicle is doing exactly what it was designed to do. 
Well, so it is with God. God is pleased when we take what has been given to us. And what's been given to you is not the same thing as what's been given to me. But when each one of us takes what has been given to us by God and uses it to the very best of our ability, God is pleased. But notice what's being implied. Each one of us has been given something to work with. And we are expected to do something with it. You notice the very last part of verse 15? It says, and then the master left on his journey, which means what? Now the three servants realize one day he's coming back. We don't know when, but when he returns, we know what's going to happen. There's going to be an accounting. He's going to want to know, what have you done with what I've given to you? So with that expectation in mind, watch how the three men respond. Verse 16, the man, the first man who received the five bags of gold, uh, immediately he goes to work. He went at once, and he put his money to work, and he gained five bags more. So also the second man who received the two bags of gold, he gained two more. But the man who received the one bag of gold went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. So after a long time, the master of those servants returned. He settles accounts with them. The man who received the five bags of gold, he brought the other five. He said, Master, see, you entrusted me. You gave me something to work with, and you expected me to do something with it. Well, here's what I did. I gained five more bags of gold. His master's thrilled. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful to a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So too, the second man, he had the two bags of gold. He comes before the master and says, master, you entrusted me. You expected me to do something with this. Well, I did. You entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained even two more. And again, the master's happy. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Did you notice? The words of praise for both men are the same. The master is just as happy with the second man as he is with the first. But here's the part of the story that, that troubles me. The third man. It says, verse 24, it says to the man who received the one bag of gold, he said, Master, I, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown, gathering what you've not, where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid, intimidated. So I just simply went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. And the master's not pleased. He's really upset. He says, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with a banker so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10. Why? Because here's the principle. Whoever has, whoever's been given something by God and you do something with it, here's the result. You'll be given more and you will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, meaning whatever you've been given by God and you didn't do something with it, then even what you have is going to be taken away. And throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now here's what bothers me. Here's the third man. He appears to be frugal. It's like he wants to play it safe. I don't want to blow the master's money. I don't want to waste this on something foolish. I don't want to see all his resources go down the drain. So he takes the master's money and he buries it in the ground. That way, when the master returns, he gives him back 100% of what he's received. The master has not lost a single penny. And yet the master is upset, really upset, so upset he calls the man wicked. And I'm thinking, really? Wicked? 
I hear that word wicked, and I'm thinking of somebody who's done something bad, something really bad. But this third man doesn't seem to be bad to me. I mean, there's been no stealing, no immorality of any kind, no reckless irresponsibility. He's not taking the master's money and spent it on parties and prostitutes. There's been no gambling. There's been no exotic getaways to the Caribbean. In fact, this third man has not taken a single penny of his master's money and spent it on himself. He gave him back 100% of what he received. And yet the boss calls him out. The boss is upset. The boss says that he's wicked. What's going on? I think one of the things that Jesus is doing in this story is he's given us a whole new understanding of that word sin. Sin means to miss the mark. Sin means you didn't hit the target. And Jesus is showing us you not only miss the mark when you do bad things. You miss the mark when you fail to take the life that God has given to you. I mean, you're missing the whole point of why God created you in the first place when you fail to take this life and do something with it. A car that's never driven goes nowhere. A dollar that's never spent buys nothing. And I love you that's never spoken is never going to touch and change another person's heart. A person who's been forgiven and redeemed and they never use that freedom, that grace that they've experienced to share that grace with others, then again, you've missed the whole point of why God put you here to fail to take the life that God has given to you and stretch it and invest it and develop it to its fullest potential, according to the Bible, that is wicked in the eyes of God. So for the Christian, the question is not just, have I stopped doing bad things? The question is also, what good things are you doing with the life that God has entrusted to you? What good things are you doing with the resources and the opportunities that he gives you every single day? Let me finish this way. On one occasion, a bowl was put in the hands of Pilate, Pontius Pilate. And he was given this bowl of water so he could wash his hands. But it's the way he washed his hands that's significant. Because of the way, the particular way he was washing his hands that day, he was making a statement. You see, on this occasion, when Pilate has given this bowl of water, he's standing on a balcony, the balcony of a palace, and he's standing before an angry mob, a crowd of people who are yelling for the death of Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. So that day when Pilate dips his hands into the bowl of water, he's not trying to remove the dirt. What he's trying to do is remove any sense of responsibility. He's sending a message to the crowd, don't hang this on me. I wash my hands of this matter. His blood be on you. Pilate was not the kind of person who wanted to take the fall or accept the blame for anybody else. He's only looking out for himself. That's not the kind of person you can trust. And this is typical of Pilate. The next time we read about Pilate, it's not on the pages of the Bible. It's in the pages of our history book. A few years after this incident with the bowl of water, we learned that there was a, a major insurrection there in the city of Jerusalem. And Pilate responds to it in such a violent way that even the people in the city of Rome are alarmed. And so he's called to the city of Rome to stand trial, to stand before the emperor himself because of the bad way he reacted. And yet, while Pilate's on his way to the city of Rome, the emperor dies and the trial never occurs. And once again, Pilate's let off the hook. He doesn't have to give an account for what he's done. Now, we generally despise people like that, the father who won't pay the child support, the kid who cheats on the test and gets away with it. That's the kind of person Pilate was. But now notice the contrast between with Pilate and what he did with his bowl of water and Jesus, what he did with his bowl of water. You see, that very same day, in the very same city, just a few hours before Pilate was dipping his hands in a bowl of water, 
we see Jesus dipping his hands in a bowl of water too. And yet the scene for Jesus is completely different. Whereas Pilate is standing in the balcony of a palace, Jesus is down on his knees in an upper room. Whereas Pilate uses the bowl of water to make a statement, I abdicate responsibility. Don't put this on me. Yet Jesus is using his bowl of water in a completely different way. He too is making a statement. I accept responsibility. I accept responsibility for you. When Pilate uses the bowl of water, he's only thinking about himself. But when Jesus uses the bowl of water, he's thinking about others. So he takes that bowl of water and he washes the dirty feet of his 12 disciples. Now here to me is what is the most amazing thing of all. When Jesus takes this bowl of water to perform this special kindness for his friends, he's not doing something out of the ordinary. He's not acting out of character. No, at that moment, he's being true to the heart of God. At that moment, he is showing us what our God is really like. Hey, this is the way God always has been and the way he always will be. It is God's nature to serve. It is his very nature to share, to give, to want to help others. This that I'm doing tonight with this bowl of water, this is typical of the way God behaves. And here's the most interesting thing of all. We were made to be that way too because the Bible says we've been made in the image of God. So what kind of bowl has God put into your hands? What kind of gifts and talents and resources and opportunities has he given to you? And to use this bowl like Pilate to serve yourself? Or to use this bowl like Jesus so you can serve others? And show them, here is what our God is really like. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you so much for the life that you've given to us and for the sense of purpose that you bring to that life. God, thank you for the opportunities every day that you give to us to serve and to share to help others, to make a difference for them. God, would you today give us the courage and strength so that we want to make the most of those moments, so that every day we really want to make our lives count for you. And God, would you help us to be faithful and wise in the way we seek to serve others? Because God, here's our desire. We want to glorify you in everything we say and do. And it's for your glory that we pray. When Jesus invited us to partake of the Lord's Supper, it was not just an invitation to look to the past. It was also an invitation to look to the future. When you eat the bread and you drink the cup, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But then he also said, and do this until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You see, because of Jesus and what he did on the cross, we have a future and a hope. Because of Jesus, we now know... The best is yet to come. What a marvelous opportunity we have right now to celebrate the hope that God has brought to our lives. So this morning, as we prepare for this special time of communion with the Lord, let's get ourselves ready with a time of prayer. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for how he has changed our past. And thank you for how he changes our future. God, thank you for giving us this moment so that we can celebrate Jesus as our Savior. So, Lord, we partake in his name. Amen.